Now in the 21st century, with an abundance of renewable technologies, why is the world still using 18th century energy technology? And how can each of us harness our unique skills to help solve the climate crisis? Leslie Hughes is a professor of biology at Macquarie University, where she researches the impacts of climate change on species and ecosystems. She is a former lead author in the IPCC's fourth and fifth assessment reports, director of the Climate Council of Australia, a former director for the World Wildlife Foundation of Australia, a member of the Wentworth Group of Concerned Scientists. Most recently, she was appointed as a member of the Climate Change Authority of Australia. Leslie Hughes, welcome to the One Planet podcast and the creative process. Thank you, Mia. It's great to be here. You know, it seems like this whole past month, the climate has been the hottest on record across the world. We've experienced unprecedented heat and Beijing currently, as you know, is reported the heaviest rainfall they've had in 140 years. All of this is very distressing. As someone who has been at the forefront of climate science in Australia for decades, and you've seen this year Australia's parliament passing breakthrough climate laws targeting the nation's worst polluters, forcing coal mines and oil refineries to curb emissions by about 5% each year. Do you find this encouraging? And what more is in the pipeline law-wise? What needs to be done? This last month has been particularly confronting. I've been in the climate science space for more than 30 years, and I think I'm a pretty resilient person in general. But I have to say this last month, I've never had such climate anxiety. We're seeing things like the Antarctic sea ice not being there and all of the sorts of tipping points that scientists have been warning about for decades. They really seem real right now. And it's sort of new for me to be struggling with that because I think I've been pretty resilient to sort of eco-anxiety. In terms of the Australian government, it's absolutely the case that the new government is much, much stronger on climate action than the previous government, though that was a very, very low bar to overcome because the previous government was just full of denial and delay and did not take the threat of climate change seriously at all, did not take the need for emissions reduction to happen rapidly seriously at all. So this new government is better. We have a Better Climate Change Act. We have a thing called the safeguard mechanism that you referred to. It remains to be seen how much companies will try to buy their way out of some of these obligations by purchasing offsets. Many of us feel that's a weakness in the scheme, that the offset provision is fairly open, but we'll see how it works. Regardless, we do have in Australia a a 43% emissions reduction target by 2030 that's legislated. That's a political target, not a science-based target. The real target should be much greater than that. And the Climate Council, on which I'm a climate councillor, says that for Australia to do its fair share, we should be aiming at 75% reduction by 2030 and net zero by 2035. Unfortunately, even though we have a weaker target, it is insufficient for Australia to be doing its fair share, even without all our exports. We're not actually on track to meet that weak target yet. We really need to ramp up both regulation and good practice to even meet that target. And it's not just about each of our individual countries doing its fair share. It's also just about survival. Australia is closer to that 1.5 degree of change than other countries are because a lot of people don't realize that's an average. And so you experience the Black Summer, which I know you specialize in bushfires and the deaths caused by heat waves. Australia is generally considered one of the most vulnerable developed 
countries to the impacts of climate change. We already have naturally a highly variable climate with significant climate extremes like bushfires, droughts and floods. And climate change is just making those extremes more extreme. So while we're a pretty adaptable to that sort of climate, we have had some events over the last few years like the Black Summer bushfires, like the recent flooding in the East Coast, that the word unprecedented is becoming very overused because every time they're described, it's said to be unprecedented. So we are very vulnerable. At the same time, we're one of the world's largest exporters of fossil fuels. So while we don't have an enormous domestic emissions, we are very much contributors to global climate change because, of course, climate change doesn't respect jurisdictional boundaries. Indeed. And you've spoken about some of the ways in which corporations and lobbyists and politicians who may be playing both sides of their constituency muddy the waters through, it could be, you know, the carbon offsets, which is really just rewarding yourself for doing behaviors you should be doing anyway, right? Or behaving badly in one end and then cleaning it up. We just had a conversation yesterday in the U.S. I'm not sure how it is in Australia, but in the U.S., a number of lobbyists are working both sides of the situation where they're working for fossil fuel companies. At the same time, some of their clients are environmentalists and they might not know that they're being used to greenwash their main clients, right? Well, in Australia, the fossil fuel lobby is very, very powerful. And there's good reasons for that in that Australia continues to earn an enormous amount of money from the export of fossil fuels, coal and gas. So it's not surprising that those fossil fuel interests want to protect those assets and that industry for as long as they possibly can. They're making record profits. They've got a lot of people working very hard to influence government. Unfortunately, the government, even though they've got much stronger domestic policies, they are still allowing new fossil fuel developments to be either extended or open. It's cognitive dissonance in the government. On the one hand, they're doing at least a reasonable job at addressing the 1.5% of global emissions that Australia produces at home. But on the other hand, they're still facilitating five or six times that amount of emissions from what we export that gets burned overseas. And you've received awards for your work as a science communicator. You talked about cognitive dissonance. Part of the battle is a lot of these environmental groups don't necessarily have a budget and they're not funded like the fossil fuel companies or other corporate interests. So they can't spend as much money on the messaging. But if you go to the fossil fuel industry and they're paid political agents who go to business school and they study marketing science and cognitive science, they're clear on their messaging, even though what they're saying is inaccurate or based on deception. We have truth on our side, but how can we communicate that better? Look, it's a really good question and we have to keep trying to get better. We've learned a lot about communicating climate science over the last couple of decades about what not to do and what to do. We'll never be funded as well as the fossil fuel companies, so we have to rely on appealing to people's better natures, appealing to people to try to understand what the impacts of climate change can be for their children and grandchildren, future generations. We have to appeal to people's sense of both global, financial and environmental security. We have to find out how to hit the right buttons at the right time. For many people, talking about local impacts and near-term impacts 
bats is a lot more effective than talking about the poor old polar bears, for example, which are a very long way away from Australia, or talking about what might happen in 2100. We really need to make it local, make it soon. And this sounds kind of mercenary, I suppose, but um, there's a saying that you should never let a good crisis go to waste. So when we do have one of these extreme events, a lot of the politicians will say, now is not the time to be talking about climate change. To which we respond, now is exactly the time to talk about climate change because these events are being driven by climate change. The black summer bushfires, for example, we did a lot of media and a lot of messaging. The floods in eastern Australia, same. The last drought, which was very long in the last El Nino event, we talked a lot about the impact of climate change on drought. We do have to, at times when there is an emergency happening, remind people that this is being exacerbated by climate change, even at the risk of being called ambulance chasers, as we have been in the past. The figures speak for themselves, and it's important to put those figures in tangible terms that people can see. As you mentioned, the Black Summer, 3 billion deaths or displacements of animals, not to mention what happened to the humans who were impacted with their homes and their lives. Yeah. You're just seeing the pictures of the koala bears that everyone loves. It hits home maybe more so than their less photogenic species. I know that's part of your work as a scientist. We talked recently with David Fenton, who's led a number of environmental and social justice campaigns, and he was saying people don't understand what is net zero. I understand it. You understand it. It's vague. It's like a theory. It's not a number. And 1.5 degree of change still sounds so small. Talking about averages all the time is a real problem in climate science because the temperature on any one day goes up and down a lot more than 1.5 or 2 degrees. So we have to keep working on relating those average global temperatures to the extremes that people experience in their lives on the ground where they live. Once again, we have to come back to making good use of when there is an emergency situation and reminding people. With the Black Summer bushfires, yes, I think that the message about the animals was a good one. But it was also the case that, you know, I live in Sydney and the sky for weeks and weeks was red. There was thick smoke everywhere. You could not escape smoke inhalation. Most of the East Coast, well over half the Australian population was inhaling bushfire smoke. You could not escape that impact. Reminding people that is the sort of thing that we are going to see more and more often. It wasn't a one-off event. It's a message about the future. As you say, we do have to be clear, these are catastrophic events. I was astounded when I heard that 1.5 degree change is actually equivalent to having about a million atomic bomb explosions every day in terms of heat. And seeing it that way actually brings that home. We need to use illustrations that people can relate to, using analogies and anecdotes and getting away from science a lot. And I'm saying that as a scientist, blasting people with complicated science is not the way to win most people over. Australians are very vulnerable. At the moment, we're in a pretty mild phase, but we're heading for an El Nino. We could be heading for a bad bushfire season this summer because over the last three years, we've had so much rain with the La Nina event that there's so much vegetation, especially grass that's grown up. Once that starts to dry off, then that's a massive bomb of fuel for a bushfire. Unfortunately, that's where we might be headed this summer. And then that will be another opportunity to remind people that this is what the future looks like. 
until we get the climate under control. Yeah, and a lot of those things like sea level rise are real tipping points. It takes a long time to recover. We were speaking to Evan Trenberth, and he's talking about these are tipping points. These are extreme nonlinear events, so it's yes. fine and fine until the whole forest goes on fire and you lose your home and you yeah. die. You can't recover from that. I think our brains see the world as something of where change is gradual, but this is not what we're seeing now. Yeah. The way I talk about tipping points is imagine you're driving a bus towards a cliff and you know the cliff is there, but there's a fog and you can't see exactly where the cliff is. Under those circumstances, keeping on driving fast is a really stupid idea. You really need to put the brakes on regardless of where exactly the edge of that cliff is, if you're not quite sure. The cliff is the tipping point. And for a lot of things, we don't know where these tipping points will occur We just know that they're out there in the fog waiting for us to fall over them. And because we know that and we understand the science that's going to lead to them, we absolutely must put the brakes on the bus, which is emissions. Exactly. And we're so fortunate to have guides who know their science, but are also so clear at communicating. In 2019, you were also awarded the Australian Museum Research Institute Lifetime Achievement Award for your contribution to climate change communication, as well as your research on the impact of Australian plants and animals. So could you just share a little bit about that aspect of your research? I'm an ecologist by background. I grew up being passionate about animals. I decided that I should do zoology at university. So I did zoology and botany and ecology. And when I was doing my PhD and thinking about what to do next, it was my PhD supervisor that suggested that thinking about climate change would be a good idea. And this was back in the early 90s. So I got into thinking about climate change impacts before there were many other scientists in Australia or probably globally doing that. But climate change is one of these things I often say it's like being in the Hotel California. You can check out any time you like, but you can't leave because the more you know about climate change and its impacts, the more of a moral imperative it becomes to keep trying to understand it and then do something about it. I don't know anybody that's gone into climate change research and then gone out and done something different. I think once you're in it, you're basically there for life. Yeah, I think knowing that it's the existential crisis of our time and that we have to all get together, whether we're coming from a science background or just are able to be that bridge to communicate it. Yeah, it's certainly drawn me in. You've also said that you used to call yourself a conservationist, but you no longer call yourself a conservationist. Can you just unpack that a little? Yes, I said that as the title of a TEDx talk I did a couple of years ago, because of course, to do a TED talk, you have to be a bit provocative. And I have long advocated for much more of an interventionist approach to conservation. I am a conservationist in the sense that I want things to continue and not go extinct. But I think the word conservation, which comes from the Latin word conservare, which means to stay the same, unfortunately has been applied to conservation policy as well as our desire for what policy is supposed to achieve. I think many of our conservation policies globally and certainly in Australia are designed to be effective in an equilibrium world where the context of what we're doing is unchanging. If you think about how climate change is doing things like driving species distributions to change and driving life cycles of species to change. It's no longer effective 
to think about our plants and animals and ecological communities in environments that are not changing. They clearly are. That calls for a different approach. And I've been long advocating, for example, for more translocation. If there are species that are rare and endangered and you know they're going to go extinct if they're stuck in the same place that they are now, we should be moving them. But there's enormous resistance both in the conservation area and outside that moving species to a new location is too risky, etc., etc. This is still a very equilibrium-type thinking in the conservation community, whereas what we actually need to be advocating for is much bolder and more interventionist action to save what we can. I've also heard that there's a move for de-extinction, but that de-extinction doesn't really work, and you're saying this is about the changing climate. Look, I think we need to not worry so much about bringing back mammoths and things that have gone extinct, which is what the de-extinction movement is aimed at doing. It's an interesting scientific and intellectual exercise, but we've got so many species now that could be extinct if we don't do things differently. I really think we should be putting what are always too scarce resources for conservation and environment, conserving the species that we've got, rather than spending a whole lot of money trying to bring back something like a mammoth. I mean, I don't know where you'd put a mammoth anyway. Yeah, exactly. I'm not sure if everyone knows, but Australia has, I think it's the greatest biodiversity in the world. Indeed, we are the stewards of an enormous percentage of the world's biodiversity. And importantly, many of our plants and animals are found nowhere else. They're what we say endemic to Australia. They evolved here and they're found nowhere else. So we have, as Australians, I think an extraordinary role to keep those species around, especially in groups like our plants. Obviously, we've got all the marsupials that are mostly not found anywhere else, but our amphibians, our birds, our fish, there's enormously high percentages in all of those groups of endemics that are found nowhere else. We also have an extraordinary array of different sorts of ecosystems, everything from the Great Barrier Reef and other coral reefs to desert ecosystems, to alpine ecosystems, to our incredible eucalypt forests, to our kelp forests, to everything. And most of those ecosystems are declining. I was on a review paper with a big group of people where we documented ecosystem collapse in 19 different ecosystems. And we found that none of them were collapsing right throughout their range, but all of them were showing signs of collapse in parts of their range, with climate change being an enormous driver. We've got the worst mammalian extinction record of any continent. We've had many, many species go extinct since European colonisation. And it's the rate of extinction here in Australia, particularly in some groups like what we call medium weight mammals, where we've lost enormous numbers. We've got huge feral animal problems, feral predator problems, habitat loss, and all of those things are intersecting with climate change. How do you engage with then, of course, the indigenous population who have been great stewards of our planet and these communities who have the smallest carbon footprints who are often experiencing the worst brunt of climate change? Yes, our indigenous communities tend to be either in really remote areas or in lower socioeconomic groups in urban areas. And it's those groups that are particularly vulnerable to any sort of change, particularly climate change. Our indigenous culture has been around for probably 65,000 years, living pretty harmoniously with nature. They had small populations, they were living off the land. 
And most of the rapid change to the Australian environment has occurred since European colonisation a bit over 200 years ago. At the same time, I think it's being more widely recognised now that Indigenous communities have to be an enormous part of the solution. We have a lot of what we call Indigenous protected areas now that are, are very large areas that are being looked after by Indigenous communities, but obviously they need funding to be able to do that. Increasingly, there are things like Indigenous ranger programs where people live on country and look after their country. They could always use more resources. But the role of Indigenous peoples in managing their country is much better recognised now than even 10 years ago. Yes. And you mentioned the Great Barrier Reef and where it's just so sad for the loss of coral reefs around the world. And I think that just studying them shows a way forward. I even have spoken to architects who look at these are like underwater cities. They're like buildings, but they're alive. They provide shelter and a source of food. And so it's so sad that we're seeing the loss of that. And not just for that, a lot of people don't know that coral reefs have provided anti-cancer medication and other pain relief medication. And not to think of it in an extractivist way, but this is another reason why we have to preserve these ecosystems. Yes, our coral reefs in Australia and elsewhere are extraordinarily diverse marine ecosystems. They're very concentrated in having many, many species that interact. And the corals provide exactly that infrastructure that everything else lives in and around and on. In Australia, on the Great Barrier Reef, we've had four major bleaching events in the last seven years. After the first two, about 50% of the hard coral cover had disappeared. Some of those corals have been coming back, but just the fast-growing corals in a few species. Corals can recover if there's sufficient time between bleaching events for them to do so, but when we get four in seven years, two of them are in consecutive years, there's just not sufficient time for them to come back to their former glory. So yes, our Great Barrier Reef is in danger. UNESCO may well list it in the next round as officially being in danger. This government and the previous government is fighting against that very hard because it is an indictment on our climate policy. There's some good programs happening to try to clean up the water running off the land into the reef and to restrict shipping and restrict fishing and those other sorts of threats. But ultimately, the greatest threat to the reef is the global threat, which is climate change. Yes. And you've spoken as your work as a founding councillor with the Climate Council of Australia. You've also been a lead author of IPC's fourth and fifth assessment reports. Could you just expand a little bit on your work in those organisations? Yeah. Let me start with the IPCC because that was the first one. So I was a lead author on the Australasian chapter in the fourth and the fifth assessment reports. I feel very privileged to have had that role. It was an extraordinary thing to be part of what is the biggest global scientific and other effort ever. Those reports are really extraordinary. They're done about every seven years. They involve thousands of people, reviews of hundreds of thousands of papers, and they're very, very important to underpin good policy and climate change. Just being part of that enormous machine as a tiny little cog was a great experience. I feel very humbled to have had that opportunity. In terms of the Climate Council, that came about because of politics. I'd originally been appointed as one of six 
climate commissioners by the then government of Julia Gillard, our first female prime minister. The six of us for two and a half years travelled all over the country giving talks about climate change and meeting people and answering questions and really trying to communicate to communities everywhere about what climate change meant and how we could solve the problem. The government then changed at an election. The Climate Commission was abolished. It was the first act of the incoming Conservative government. It happened just a few days after the election. But we were prepared for it because we'd been expecting it. So we had decided that our work was far from finished and we put out an appeal to the public for funding to support a new organisation called the Climate Council. Next month it will be our 10-year anniversary of starting the Climate Council and we've gone from a staff of one with a few councillors to a staff of more than 50 with 16 councillors. We've started all sorts of things like the Climate Media Centre, etc., etc., And we've built up into what is Australia's most well-known climate communication organisation. And I'm deeply proud of having been involved in that process. And we admire the council and we admire your boldness because we've spoken to a number of climate scientists and sometimes they say their place is not to be an advocate and not to be an activist, that they prefer the title of science. But you take a slightly different position. And could you just tell how you advocate and your dealings with politicians and that whole process. Yeah. It is the case that many of my colleagues are reluctant to speak out in the public sphere. I think that comes a bit from what's happened in the past where scientists and advocates have been really targeted very unfairly by vested interests that have an interest in delaying action. I have always had the view that if you are a scientist and you do accept the science and you understand the science, that you have no option but to speak out. If you really understand the risks that climate change poses to all life on earth, how can you sit by and not speak out about that? I have never seen being a scientist and being an advocate or activist, whatever you want to call it, as having any inconsistency at all. In fact, I get frustrated with scientists who are reluctant to speak out because if all you do is write papers in scientific journals and don't take the communication to another step, then you will have limited impact. We do need to collect data. We need to write scientific papers that are good ones, but we also need to be out in the public communicating that. I've never seen a problem with those two roles. For me, they are one and the same. I can see at other points in history where simply observing and recording and being impartial might have been the position to take. But when it's a matter of the survival of our planet, that comes first. And you're absolutely right. We need to communicate to the general public who can make that change in numbers, that systemic change. Yeah, I think we can still be objective as scientists. We still need to look at data objectively and say, well, what does this show? But that's different from being a public advocate. You can take that objective view of data and tell the public. I think we have an absolute obligation to tell the public, what does this mean for our future? That's not being non-objective. It's actually being objective about the science but then communicating that more broadly because it's not the scientists that make the important policy decisions. It's the politicians, it's business leaders, and they need to have information to underpin those decisions. And the public needs to have that information so that they vote for the right people. 
For me, witnessing Leslie Hughes and Mia Funk's mutual devotion to combating climate change at a time when its impacts are only growing more frequent and more severe was deeply motivational. The young person looking forward amidst the climate crisis can be terrifying. It is often tempting to shield my eyes from the devastation to our planet propelled by fossil fuels and the exploitation of Earth's natural resources. It is in my exposure to conversations like this one, however, that my hope is reinvigorated. Just this past week, Southern California, which is where I live, experienced a tropical storm for the first time in nearly a century. Watching the rain come down outside my apartment, in addition to seeing videos of the extreme flooding happening in places like Palm Springs, which is just about a short drive away from me, is a memory I can only describe as surreal. I had heard that that amount of water hitting the desert floor in such a short period of time was comparable to pouring a bucket of water on a tile floor. You could see the analogy in action, and I remember being hit with the same kind of wave of climate anxiety Leslie describes at the beginning of this episode. Hearing Leslie speak about the need for multi-generational, multicultural, interdisciplinary collaboration when it comes to the climate crisis has taught me that at the end of the day, overcoming climate change and protecting the one planet that we all call home is largely about human connection. Because of this, I realized that it remains a moral imperative, not just for every single one of us to act, but for us all to harness our interconnectedness and realize the increased strength derived from a diversity of environmental change makers. And now back to the interview. I think that's the Edmund Burke saying that the only thing necessary for evil to triumph in the world is for good men to do nothing. I should say good women, because I know that you're an advocate for women in science, and that's another side of your activism. When you're dealing with politicians, how do you envisage the next five, 10 years in terms of that progress? At the moment, I was appointed last year to a body called the Climate Change Authority, which is the official legislated government body that provides advice to the climate change minister, the parliament and to the government on climate policy. So I am now kind of closer to that policy than I've ever been before. And I'm there as a scientist. So I hope I'm bringing science to that process. We need a radical transformation of investment in emissions reduction. We need some pretty strong regulatory policies. I think we've been relying on voluntary action for so long, and it's clear that has not been enough. So I'm an advocate of far more stringent stepping in of governments to regulate. I don't know whether we're going to achieve the 43% emissions reduction target. I hope we meet and beat that. At the moment, things are not looking all that good. But on the other hand, Australia is a country with almost unlimited renewables resources. We're the sunniest country in the world, one of the windiest. We have great engineers and great scientists. We have the means and the public concern concern and support to move much faster. It's going to be a, a matter for the government to bring in policies that accelerate the transition from using 18th century energy technology to 21st century energy technology. But I would also like to see 
the government really start to restrict new fossil fuel developments because it's been made very clear by the IPCC, by the International Energy Agency, by every scientific paper you could read that promoting new developments is completely incompatible to a safe climate. In terms of engaging with the public and making those emotional appeals that make them take action and make change possible, we've spoken with others about the environmental humanities and they've shared writers or poets or musicians who is like a touchstone nature writers that helps kind of make that emotional appeal and something that they turn to when they're having climate anxiety. It's certainly not the case that the scientists should be the only people communicating. We have to have everybody in this mix because we're all in this together. So we have to have good science that's communicated. We have to have smart engineers that can work on the technological solutions. We have to have the lawyers who are undertaking climate litigation. We have to have creative artists that can tell stories and appeal people's emotions. There's no one group that should have responsibility to solve the climate crisis. It's got to be all of those groups bringing what they call the time, the talent and the treasure to work together on this. We are all in this together. We're all being affected and we've all got a suite of different skills that have to be harnessed to solve this problem. And you're a hero for many in the scientific community, especially women scientists. Tell us about your advocacy on their behalf, because we're only at the moment embracing just a half of our talent if we don't fully embrace and support women scientists. Yes, most of my work on gender equity has been within a university context, because it is still the case that only 30% of university professors, which is the highest level in Australia, are women on average. So we don't have enough role models for young women to go into science and the other STEM disciplines and see that they can be successful and have a great career in science. So we need to tackle this. And where I've been involved in tackling it is at the university level. And we've been doing things at my university, such as changing the promotion system to better value the sorts of things that many women do within a university context that have not been as valued before. So things like public engagement and communication, things like integrating, say, science with public policy. And by the university recognising that those skills and those activities are just as important as pumping out 100 papers, we've been able, I think, to shift the dial on what is valued within universities. And certainly when we brought in a new promotion system at the university that I am at, we got a huge upswing in women applying for promotion and being promoted. It's a slow process, but I think we can identify where the barriers to women progression are and tear those barriers down as best we can. And as you think about the future and education and the kind of world we're leaving the next generation and just celebrating this beauty and wonder of the natural world, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Our young people, they're putting the older generation to shame. We saw the school kids strike start a few years ago and the wonderful Greta Thunberg who really lit that flame. And we had huge school kids strikes all around Australia and globally. Many of those kids marching couldn't vote then. They were less 
than 18 or less than 21, depending on the country, but they're growing up now and they're demanding change. And I think the last election that we had in Australia, where there were a lot of independents that got elected that had climate policy as their number one key policy, they got the youth vote. The kids are voting for their future and they're active, they're passionate, they're scared. They're informed, you know, they get a lot more climate science at school than I did when I was at school. So they are the future. It is also unfair for us as adults to rest all our hopes on the younger generation. It's not fair to say, isn't it great? You give us hope, you'll fix it. By the time a lot of those kids are grown up, it'll be too late if we haven't fixed it already. So while they are urging us for stronger action to save their futures, we shouldn't sort of step back and say, well, the young people are going to fix it because it is our responsibility to fix it. Indeed, we can't expect them to have the wisdom and experience to fix things in a shorter time period that we have not fixed in all the time that we have had and past generations have had. It's just illogical. So that's very important that we're in this together and we unite in our voices. So thank you for being a unifying force, Leslie Hughes, for sharing your scientific knowledge, activism for the climate and women in science, your active hope, and pushing politicians to recognize the seriousness of the climate crisis. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. A pleasure, Mia. Thank you for having me. One Planet podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producers on this episode were Sam Myers and Grace Phillips. Additional production support by Sophie Garner. The music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.